I was rather pleased to discover that Messiaen included guillemots and catalogued the oiseau. Because of all the birds that I've studied during my 40 years here at the University of Sheffield, the guillemot at the top left there um, is the bird I've spent most time with. Uh, I've been studying that species uh, on this island, the island of Skoma off the coast of Wales, uh, since 1972. If you don't know where Skoma is, uh, the marks the spot. And until fairly recently, I used to say that studying guillemots was good for your health. Um, certainly, it was uh, not great for keeping your hair, but uh, <laughs> I have enjoyed uh, going back to Skoma every year. I've also studied guillemots uh, elsewhere. And here's just a short little bit of film uh, to give you a sense of what it's like being at a guillemot colony. They're noisy, smelly, inspirational places. And this is our main study colony on the south of Skoma. And you can see the birds breed um, on these cliff ledges. They make no nest. They lay a single large egg. And they're intensely uh, social. They spend the winter at sea, and they only really come onto land uh, in order to breed. Uh, the birds come back to Skoma um, sometimes by December, makes rather sporadic visits, and then by late April or early April, uh, they're coming back uh, on a regular basis. There's a couple of birds preening each other here. And uh, I was just talking to somebody in the audience who was saying it wasn't right for biologists to anthropomorphize, but I actually like anthropomorphizing. And the reason I like guillemots is they're basically like us. You know, they live in high-rise blocks, we live in high-rise blocks. They breed at high density, we live at high density. They form long-term pair bonds and stay with their partners throughout most of their lives. They often show a lot of affection for their partners and sometimes for their neighbors, and they're not averse to a little bit on the side occasionally. And like us, uh, they age. And these are the lives of guillemots. And whereas you can tell the juvenile stages, the egg and the chick, very easily, uh, once a guillemot's adult, it doesn't apparently appear to deteriorate like a human being. And the oldest known guillemots are 40 years old. So these are long-lived birds, and they don't breed until they're um, about seven. But like a lot of other species, guillemots uh, are in trouble. And certainly on Skoma, we've recently discovered that in the 1930s, there was at least 100,000 pairs. We found some photographs taken in 1934, and on the basis of what we know about guillemot biology, I was able to extrapolate back, and there were at least 100,000 pairs. Now, sooner had we done that, and somebody sent me some photographs of exactly the same cliff face, huge cliff face, taken in the 1880s, and the numbers were just as high in the 1880s. Just when I started, the numbers had plummeted to 3,000, 95% uh, decline. So that changes illustrated on this graph here. And since about 1980, numbers have been increasing. And because most people have got very short-term memories, everybody goes, oh, well, there's nothing to worry about, about guillemots because numbers are increasing. But if you extrapolate this increase, I reckon it's going to take, if nothing intervenes, it's going to take another 50 years to get back to 100. So although numbers are increasing on SCOMA, which is good news, um, things were much better in the past, 
But if you go further north in Britain, into Scotland, things are very bad indeed. There's a combination of overfishing, mainly overfishing of sand eels, and climate change. Uh, food supplies in that part of the Gilmots range are very, very unpredictable. Now, some of those pictures I showed you earlier uh, of Gilmots living in these close-knit um, groups at high density, um, and when everything's going well, they're fantastically caring. They preen each other, they preen their neighbours, they look after their neighbours. Chick, if a, if a bird has to go off and fish, they kind of lift their wing up and say, come on, stuff under here until your mum and dad come back. It's very caring. If a gull or a raven comes to steal an egg, a bird from the back of the group might come thundering out, whack the gull in the face and frighten it off, and then just go back to its own partner. It's a very altruistic kind of thing. But when food is short, as it has been in Scotland in the last few years, the whole behaviour of guillemots change as much as I think it would do with, with humans under the same circumstances. And this is a picture of what was happening in the year when there were literally no sand eels. The birds had enough food to form eggs, they hatched the eggs, and when the chicks hatched, the chicks basically were starving. And adults were throwing their neighbours' chicks off the ledges in order that they wouldn't compete for the little bit of food that there was around for their chicks. So it's a pretty serious situation. And numbers are declining. There's many years when guillemots don't breed at all. And so um, I think it's really important to understand the biology of guillemots, their population dynamics, and how their populations work. So what does our study do? So for 40 years, we've been counting guillemots. If you're faced with a mass of birds like this, I mean, what does that mean in terms of the number of pairs? So we found a way of changing numbers of individuals to the number of pairs. We measure breeding success. Each bird only lays one egg, but what proportion of birds rear a chick to hatching? And we measure the survival. What proportion of birds, adult birds, survive from one year to the next? Survival is actually uh, one of the key population parameters that we're interested in. When I was putting this talk together, I was kind of uh, surprised and horrified to find this slide of some of my earlier exploits. Survival seems to be the name of the game there. Um, I'm hanging, I'm catching a bird with a pole, catching birds uh, attached to this rope, interestingly, which isn't attached to anything else. Which, um... <laughs> and when, when we've caught those birds, we give them a numbered ring, and sometimes it's on the adult, sometimes on the chick, and we use a little handheld computer, and so one of my field assistants sits on SCOMA for eight hours a day uh, for four months looking for those rings and writing the numbers down into this little handheld computer and then just feeding it in. And as you can see there, we've got a database of about 15,000 birds over the years. And as a result of that data on survival and breeding success and so on, we now know, we have a very good idea of how the population actually works and why that increase, that slight increase that we talked about, um, is actually occurring. But in addition to kind of an academic study of the bird's population dynamics, what, else, what we do also is basically monitoring. And I think of this as being a bit like health screening. By keeping tabs on how many birds there are, what proportion survive from one year to the next and their breeding success, we're keeping an eye on when things might go wrong. And if you know when things are going wrong, then you might be in a position to do something about it. My study started in 1972 uh, as a PhD. And in, with hindsight, and having been a PhD supervisor myself, 
I now realize it was a pretty stupid project to give a student to do in three years because long-lived species need long-term studies. My supervisor, Chris Perrins at Oxford, is still alive. He's 80. He still goes out to Scoma as well. And every year he sees me, this gets a bit tedious after a bit, he goes, when are you going to finish your PhD? <laughs> well, I'm going to keep going at least as long as him. So long-term long-lived species do need these long-term studies. And in a world where most bird species are declining, you need monitoring, especially in light of climate change. And uh, two years ago, in the early spring, January and February, 2014, there was a, a massive seabird wreck with at least 40,000 uh, dead birds. Most of those were guillemots, many of those were from scoma bearing our rings. And just at the time this happened, our funding was cut. So for 42 years, uh, we'd been monitoring guillemots, and the previous 20 or so years, we'd been funded by a body called the Countryside Council for Wales, which is a government body. But in 2014, just at the time that wreck, uh, occurred, CCW was absorbed into this new quango called Natural Resources Wales. And the first thing they did was to cut my Guillemot funding, which seemed a bit perverse to me, to say the least, because long-term studies, and I'm not saying this just for my own sake, long-term studies of any animal species are disproportionately successful compared with three-year PhD studies. So there I was. Um, how was I going to keep this study going? Somebody in the university said, have you thought of crowdfunding? And I had very briefly, but I'd instantly rejected it. I'd said, um, okay, how, how will you ever launch something like this uh, to get enough people to give you enough money to keep the study going for, for another year? But curiously, um, just at the time this was happening, uh, it was the previous festival of the mind, and I'd already got a project um, working with an artist, Chris Wolbank, who came out to SCOMA on three occasions simply to, to draw the guillemots and to learn about our study and to learn about the bird's uh, biology. And he and I got on like a house on fire. He was a great guy, and we're still in touch. And he produced these amazing um, illustrations of guillemot colonies. And uh, some of you may know there was later an exhibition in Sheffield Cathedral. I gave a talk, and he exhibited his artwork. And it was all fantastic. Whilst that was going on, and unbeknown to me, the Festival of the Mind publicist wrote to the top scientific journal, Nature, to ask them whether they'd be interested in me writing a piece about the demise of my um, long-term study. And to my absolute amazement, Nature wrote back and said, yes, we're very interested, and they gave me about 12 hours to write a summary of the uh, piece I'd write, and then they, when they read that, they said, yes, we need that. And then within a week, it was published. And as soon as they accepted that article, I knew this was the thing that would kickstart crowdfunding. So I went back to the lady who'd suggested crowdfunding within the university and said, yep, just turn the button on. Let's just do it. I don't know whether any of you have ever done crowdfunding, but uh, it was, the scheme I used was called Just Giving. And in the, all the little boxes and things, it said, if you want to be told when you've had a donation, tick this box on the thing in Nature was published, and my computer didn't stop buzzing for a fortnight. I was on an absolute high. And the money, it wasn't huge. We had just asked for £14,000, which was just one year's money to pay a field assistant. But uh, we'd got that within a relatively uh, short 
period of time. So it was one of the most exciting and gratifying um, things I'd ever done. Now, this article that I wrote was not simply about me. It was a plea for all long-term studies because, as I say, they're disproportionately successful. And as I say, that resulted in massive uh, publicity. And um, this was me on SCOMA, jumping with joy. So we now move back to Messian and um, look at, listen to, Birds of the Night. Thank you.